Well, once again, Happy New Year to everyone. The past year has surely had its challenges and surely there are more to come this year. Despite them all though, God has been good to us. God has been faithful to us. And so I thought it fitting for us to begin the year with a message of both warning and encouragement for us as we face all of the trials, tests, and temptations that 2021 has in store. In the coming year, it will be important for us to remember that God is faithful to keep his promises to us. And God promises here, in this, in this text, to always provide a way of escape from temptation. So as we go about exploring this text, we should be encouraged that no matter what we face this year, we need not be overcome by sin and the sorrow that it brings. So our big idea tonight is this. The believer is always given a way to escape or resist sin. So let's dive into the text now and see what treasures we can bring up from its depths. So here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is writing to the Corinthians concerning the sin of idolatry. And so he recalls in the minds of the hearers of his letter the experiences of the Israelites in the wilderness after their rescue from slavery in Egypt. He tells them from verse 6. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. So the things written off here, things like idol worship, sexual immorality, grumbling against the Lord and putting him to the test, all these things, Paul says, were recorded for those who would come afterward in order that they be warned not to be like them. So we can see ultimately that Paul's warning and subsequent encouragement concerns recognizing and then fleeing from or resisting the, the sin that can easily come about as a result of temptation. So while idolatry was particularly in view here, I hope we can see how we can and should apply what Paul says here to every part of our lives. And that is because we are prone to sin in every part of our lives. Human beings are tempted in a multitude of ways, not just idolatry. So as you listen tonight, take heed of what Paul says in verse 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Don't think that because you've never bowed down to a carved statue or worshipped some other creature that this message is not for you. First of all, any time that you fail to make God Almighty the focus of your life and energy, you commit idolatry as you put some lesser pursuit or interest above the Most High God. And any time that you fail to think of God as he has revealed himself in the scriptures, you form an idol or a false God in your mind. So more than likely, you are, in fact, prone to idolatry. And secondly, you can experience the pull towards sin in every aspect of your life. 
Whether it's sexual sin, fits of rage, lies and deception, greed, the fear of man over the fear of God, you name it. Sin, as Genesis says, is always crouching at your door. Temptation is an ever-present aspect of our lives. So therefore, as the text says, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. So with that brief introduction out of the way, we can get into exploring our big idea that God always provides a way for us to escape the sin that can come from temptation. To that end, I've divided the message into two simple parts. The first is that we'll see what temptation is, and in the second, we'll see what God's faithfulness has to do with our ability to escape falling into sin. So we'll see what temptation is, and then we'll see what God's faithfulness has to do with our ability to escape falling into sin. So with that said, let's answer the question, what actually is temptation? Of course, the best place to start is by looking at the original Greek word used. And that word is pyrasmos. And it means a putting to proof, an experiment, a trial, or test. Now to me, this was immediately significant because I'd always thought of temptation as simply being about desiring something that you shouldn't. You know, your mom says you can't play video games except on weekends, but you really, really want to go and find where she's hidden your Game Boy. And that's a true story. But upon further study, I found out that that's just one aspect that may be present in temptation. Actually, temptation is really about testing or trial. It's about putting something to proof. It's fundamentally an experiment designed by God to show the quality of the person being tested. So back when my mom said I couldn't play video games during the week, I wasn't simply desiring something I shouldn't by wanting to play my games when I wasn't supposed to. There was more going on than that. I was being tested by God as to whether or not I would give in to disobedience. My faithfulness to my mother's instructions was on trial. God was performing an experiment on me to demonstrate or to show forth what kind of man I was. And as it turned out, I was a sinner like all the rest. And so, testing is the true significance of temptation. To further make this point, let me show you some other places in the scripture where the same word pyrasmos, which is used to mean temptation in 1 Corinthians 10, also means trial or test. In 1 Peter 4, verse, verses 12, verse 12 rather, Peter says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. The word there used for test is the same word, pyrasmos. And in Revelation 3, verse 10, Christ says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Again, the same word there is pyrasmos. And there are more examples in scripture. Now, let's deal with a few potential misconceptions. Here's the first misconception. Proverbs 17 verse three says, the crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold and the Lord tests hearts. So if temptations are tests, 
and God is the one who tests men, doesn't that mean that God tempts men in order to test them? No, absolutely not. Not according to what is written in James chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. James says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast on the trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Here's the important part. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you see, temptations are tests, and God does indeed ordain times, situations, and circumstances for men to be tested with temptation, but God himself tempts no one. James tells us here that the root of temptation is within man himself. It is our own lusts, passions, and desires that compel us towards sin. And that makes sense since temptations are tests of men. They are experiments designed to show forth what is in man. And so when people are tempted and give in to temptation, what is shown is the selfishness, pride, anger, lust, and all other manner of sin that resides within the human heart. Because in the face of the testing of temptation, a man's own sinful desires lures and entices him. Those sinful desires then proceed into sinful acts, and those sinful acts eventually bring about death. So what does that mean for us? Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. When these uncomfortable seasons come upon us, we are not to blame God. For example, when you're dealing with the miserable consequences of watching pornography, that's not God's fault. It's your fault. The desire came from within you. You allowed it to lead you. You were enticed by it and lured away by it. Or when you end up before the law courts because you were tempted to break the law, maybe you stole something out of greed, that came from within you. All of the sorrowful consequences of your crime, the fines, the imprisonment, the strained relationships, you name it, all of it came about as a result of the sin within you and the fact that you let it control you and master you. God is not to blame for that. Actually, Rather than blaming God for our weaknesses, we should be thanking him that he hasn't let the human race go on in delusion. He hasn't let us go on thinking that we are also good, that we are also righteous. No, God has shown humanity to be corrupt. God has demonstrated what resides in the hearts of all men. God has left us in no doubt as to the fallenness of mankind and our desperate need for a savior. So in those times when you are tempted and give in to temptation and you sin, rather than blaming God, recognize where the fault truly lies and seek an escape. Seek a remedy for the corruption within you. More on that later. Now on to misconception number two. Back in July, back in July last year during the lockdown, 
Pastor John preached a message from 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, where Paul says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Now, the point of that sermon was to teach us that God will give us more than we can handle. And God does this so that we would rely not on ourselves, but on him. God does give us more hardship and affliction than we can handle in order to bring us to the ends of our own strength. In order to remove any last inkling of the feeling of control that we think we have of our lives in order to make us realize our weakness, in order to wake us up from our delusion so that we come to terms with how utterly dependent we are on God for everything. So what's happening in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, is that Paul and his associates were under severe affliction and being tested to their breaking point. You know, when engineers build large concrete structures, they always will take a sample of the concrete, and once it's hardened, they put it under great pressure and they test it to its breaking point. This is to demonstrate how much force it can take before cracking. And this is what happened to Paul and his associates. God tested them to their breaking point, utterly burdened them beyond their strength, to demonstrate to them their weakness and cause them to rely on him. Now here's the misconception. When we say God will give you more than you can handle, someone will reply, no, he won't. God never gives you more than you can handle. The Bible says so. Well, does the Bible say so? Why would people think that? Where would that idea come from? Well, it comes from a misconception of our main text tonight. The specific text that says God won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. That text has morphed over time into the more general statement, God never gives you more than you can handle. What I think happens is that Bible verses get thrown around so much out of context that eventually they just become sayings to the point where they resemble the original text, but the meaning changes. For example, people say all the time, money is the root of all evil. That's a common saying, but that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Or what about Jonah being swallowed by a whale? Scripture doesn't say that. It says he was swallowed by a great fish. Here's one more. God helps those who help themselves. That one's not even in the Bible. So you see, our text tonight is used often by well-meaning people to try and encourage people who are going through hardship. They say, God won't give you more than you can handle. But again, as Pastor John showed us back in July, oh yes, he will. Our main text here in 1 Corinthians that God won't let you be tempted beyond your ability isn't saying that God won't utterly burden you to your breaking point. But rather that God will never put you in a situation where your only choice is to sin. Let me give an example. Suppose you have great wealth and possessions. Suppose you're Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos or one of those guys. But then 
your house burns down. You might actually say, that's no big deal. I can handle that. I'm a billionaire. I got more than one house. I could just build another house and even if I wanted to, I could stay at a luxury villa until it's done. No problem. Ah, but then a financial crisis hits and now all your money is worthless and all the other assets you had got destroyed by a hurricane or a volcano or something like that. Well, then you might say, no big deal. I can handle this. I can just go stay with my family. I can go live with them. But then your entire family is killed by bandits. You see what I'm getting at here? Eventually, every natural human means you turn to in order to rescue yourself fails, one after the other. Eventually, the burdens pile up so much that there is nothing left that you can do in your own power to calm your nerves. Nothing you can do in your own power to remedy the calamity that has befallen you. And so now, at the end of your strength and ability, you realize just how weak and dependent you are, and you realize that you should have been hoping in and trusting in and depending upon God Almighty from the beginning. This is what it means to be so utterly burdened beyond your strength that you are made to rely not on yourself, but on God who raises the dead. However, I want us to understand, even in the face of all that burdening and hardship, you will have never been in a situation where your only choice was to sin. Even when you have reached the very bottom of that ladder of despair, no home, no job, no family, and your very life feels swallowed up in the pit of affliction, and you are being tempted to curse God and die, you always have another option. Even to say like Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all that you suffer, you don't have to sin by charging God with wrong. So hopefully that removes any of the misconceptions you may have had about those two particular scriptures. So now with those two misconceptions dealt with, I just want to look at a few more aspects of temptation. Because I want us to be clear about who is responsible for what in temptation. For example, we've already seen that it would be blasphemous for anyone to say that they were being tempted by God. God himself tempts no one. Rather, we are tempted when we are drawn away by our own internal lusts and desires. However, it would be accurate to say that God tests us. And of course, there is a third actor in this dynamic of testing and temptation. Satan the deceiver and accuser of mankind. He preys upon our weaknesses and he tries to stoke the flames of our sinful desire. Now let me be clear here. That fire is already burning within us. Satan didn't start that fire. Rather, we are responsible for it. It is not ultimately Satan's fault when we give in to temptation and allow our sinful desires to lead us away. It's our fault. But let me show you how Satan and his demonic forces work. While you are ultimately the one stalking the flames of your own sin, by your own refusal to try and quench it and throw water on it, Satan is like a guy who comes alongside you and says, hey buddy, here's some, here's some lighter fluid. Just take it and throw it on the fire. Or, you know what would be a good idea? Get some wood, 
throw some more wood on that fire. You see, Satan knows that this fire will eventually consume you and kill you if it's not put out. But he comes alongside you to deceive you and entice you to keep it burning and increase its heat. This is one of the ways that Satan acts in this world as tempter. He wants us to fall into sin because he knows that we are weak and that sin will lead to our destruction. This is why Peter warns us to be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And he devours us by enticing us to follow our own lusts and desires straight into the fires of hell. So, in summary, God tests, Satan tempts, and men, while being tested and tempted, either fail the testing as they are led away by their own lusts and desires, or pass the testing by resisting the temptation. A good place to look to see these elements of temptation playing out is in the temptation of Jesus Christ. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. There we read from verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Let's stop there for a moment. Who was it that led Jesus into the wilderness? It was the Holy Spirit. God led the Christ into that particular place and time. And why did God lead Jesus into the wilderness? To be tempted by the devil. That's what the text says. Or we could put it another way. God led Jesus into the wilderness so that by the temptation of the devil, he would be tested. But why? Well, both men and angels could ask the question, what manner of man is this Jesus? This man who makes grand claims about being the Messiah, the Christ, the spotless Lamb of God and the Son of God. What manner of man is he? Well, a test or experiment is about to take place here in the wilderness. And obviously God is not experimenting so that he himself could learn something new. Rather, the purpose of this experimentation is to display to all the quality of this man, Jesus of Nazareth. <clears throat> this is the second Adam. But is he better than the first Adam? He is. Look at what we read from verse 2. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. <clears throat> Brothers and sisters, Jesus passed the test. 
Jesus displayed to all the manner of man that he was and what was within him. He was sinless. His heart was pure and unstained by sin. There was no lust and evil desire in his heart to draw him away from perfect obedience to the Father. This was the significance of the testing of Christ Jesus, that despite being brought to a place of weakness, being hungry and exhausted in the desolate wilderness, despite being tempted by Satan himself, he did not fall to temptation and was shown to be worthy of the title Spotless Lamb of God. And he was shown to be fit to be the savior of mankind. The new and better Adam. Praise be to God that we can have confidence in the fitness of the savior. Indeed, this is our confidence when we sing, Hallelujah, what a savior. So now that we understand all these things, we can move on to the second and final part of this message. And that is what God's faithfulness has to do with our ability to escape falling into sin. So let's remind ourselves of tonight's text again in 1 Corinthians 10, 12-13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Having just briefly looked at the quality of the man Christ Jesus, we may feel discouraged. After all, he has shown how he can resist temptation. And all we show is how easily we fall into it. But I want us to remember, first of all, the reason Christ was even in that wilderness. It was to show his worthiness to be our perfect sacrifice so that we could be washed and redeemed and made new in him. So when we look at Christ, who is better than us in every regard, we shouldn't feel depressed as those who can never and therefore will never be like him. Rather, we should rejoice because in his sinless perfection, Christ has gone to the cross paid our debt, and given us new life. And the days are coming when, because of that perfect man, Jesus, we too will be like him, perfect and sinless. Christ's perfection secures our future perfection. Now, as we rejoice over our future perfection, we should not ignore our current imperfection. We shouldn't ignore how currently Temptation lurks all around us, and our flesh is drawn to it. It wants to sin. Paul provides us here with encouragement concerning our ability to resist. And we must resist. Now listen carefully. Christ didn't have to resist sin. It was not as if there was sinful desire within him that he needed to fight and prevail over in order to avoid sinning. But we do need to resist sin. We do have sinful lusts within us. We are affected by the lusts of the flesh, the lusts of the eyes, and the pride of life because of the corruption that we have from Adam. And so the first encouragement Paul gives us is that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. We know what we are prone to. 
The human race has been around long enough to have shown the kind of things that ensnare it. What this means is that you can assess any given situation and know whether or not it is an area where people have shown themselves to be prone to sin. Therefore, you can avoid it or take measures to reduce the likelihood of falling to temptation. Take, for example, something like greed and theft on the part of pastors. There have been, sadly, many cases throughout the centuries of those who are tasked with caring for the sheep being the main ones who abuse the sheep. Some pastors collect offering, for example, and then they use that money for their own personal gain. Well, out of recognition of how common this sin is, many churches have taken measures to avoid it. As most of you know, Pastor John doesn't have access to our churches when to come. And for those who do, the signature of more than one authorized person is required to make a withdrawal. So no one person can steal the church's money. But let's be real here. Pastor John can be tempted to try and scheme with two of the authorized persons in order to defraud the church. It, it's of course possible that he might try to convince Jonathan and I to join him in sin. But you see, it's way less likely that Pastor John and Jonathan and I at the same time will fall to the temptation to steal. The chances of that happening are far lower than if each one of the church's financial officers and the pastor had singular access to the account. So my point is that measures like this one that many churches adopt concerning church finances help reduce the instances of people falling to sin. Now, the measures might reduce temptation, but they don't eliminate it completely. Like, if I know it's highly unlikely that I won't be able to steal the church's money, the thought is less likely to enter my mind. That's just being real. Like, most of us aren't tempted with the thought of seriously robbing a bank. Because that's a really hard thing to do. But it's a different story when someone leaves their wallet on the table and walks away from it. Taking it would be very easy. And so the temptation is stronger. So likewise, while these measures don't remove temptation completely, they reduce the power of the temptation and here's the point. They make it less likely that those involved will fall to it and commit sin. And so practical measures like this serve as ways of escape from sin and allow us to weaken and endure temptation. Now, of course, I don't mean to cast any doubt on the reputations of Pastor John or our Deacon Jonathan, myself, or any of the other financial officers in the church. I assure you, we're not all eagerly waiting to steal the church's money. The presence of these measures doesn't mean that the pastor or the financial officers are untrustworthy. Just because these measures exist doesn't mean that you should be looking at you know, the pastor or the, or the financial officers with you know, suspicion. It's just that all of us together as a church are trying to follow biblical wisdom. Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. We may not be tempted now, but we could be later. We should never think of ourselves or anyone else as being above temptation and sin. So moving away from the example of church finances and looking at this issue a bit more broadly, it would, we would all be unwise to think that there are certain sins that we can't be tempted with. 
It's exactly that carefree attitude that Paul warns against when he says that anyone who thinks that he stands, take heed lest he fall. Take the sin of adultery, for example. You may think it highly unlikely that you'd ever cheat on your spouse. The two of you are far too close. You love each other far too much. And while that may sound naive to some, hang on a second, there's a degree to which that's actually true. Your relationship with your wife is so good and you're so happy that your eyes don't wander to other women. You love your husband so much that other men don't even get any attention from you. That can certainly be true. But here's the point. What happens when, over time, your relationship stops being as good as it was? All it takes is for your spouse to start doing things that upset you. And then the anger and resentment sets in. And all of a sudden, your eyes do start to wander. And the man or woman at work who makes you laugh and makes you feel better than your spouse, that person starts to look more and more attractive. Now, it's not so unlikely. Sadly, it's more likely than unlikely. And this is an old story seen time and time again, unfortunately. It's common to mankind, after all. So even when you think it unnecessary to have these measures to reduce the power of temptation and avoid falling into sin, it's still a good idea to keep your guard up. Take heed if you think you stand, lest you fall. So in all this, remember what Paul says. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God has tested man and shown where he is weak. So take that data, as it were, and be watchful over your own lives. The next thing Paul says is, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now I want to clarify something here. The text says that he, that is God, will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. That can be a little confusing if not properly understood. Because, are we escaping temptation or are we enduring temptation? Which is it? Like, if I escape from torture, I don't then have to endure it because I've escaped it. I'm no longer in that situation. On the other hand, if I endure torture, then I haven't escaped it. I'm still in it. It just means that I won't crack under it. So what does Paul mean here? Well, understand that Paul isn't talking about escaping temptation, but rather escaping the sin that we can fall into as a result of temptation. And so what happens is that we escape sin all the while enduring temptation. The temptation may remain with us, but we don't necessarily have to fall into it, have to fall to it and commit sin. Our flesh may pull on us and Satan may beckon us to come with him into sin, but we stand firm and thus we escape sin. Now, the text says that God is faithful. Whatever temptations we're met with, we are promised that we have the ability to resist it. And how? The answer is that because God has provided a way of escape from sin. And what way of escape from sin has God provided? Well, ultimately, God has provided his own son, Jesus. Ultimately speaking, the way that we can once and for all escape the clutches of sin and be perfectly righteous 
is in and through Christ Jesus. Remember when I said earlier that we aren't to blame God for our falling into sin, but rather recognize our weakness and seek an escape and seek a remedy? Well, Christ Jesus is that escape and that remedy. In the meantime, though, as we await the fullness of our salvation from sin, God has provided us with practical means by which we can escape sin day to day, enabled by Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit. The main way we've been given of escaping sin and enduring temptation is the Word of God. The truth of Scripture provides us with the main weapon we have for resisting sin and the indulgence of our flesh and desires. Recall again the temptation of Jesus. When Satan tried to make him fall, how did Jesus respond? He said, it is written. Those three times, that was always the go-to of our Lord. It is written. He founded his defense against sin upon God's word. Jesus answered every temptation with the word of God. So not only does the word allow us to identify sin clearly, it tells us what we ought to do instead of sinning. The word stops us as we march into sin and it turns us around and points us towards righteousness. So what does that mean for us? Know the word of God. Read it. Get familiar with it. Memorize it. Rehearse it. Keep it at the forefront of your mind so that before any temptation comes to enter your mind, it must first butt up against the truth of God's word. Christian, read your Bible. Study the word of God. Because you won't be able to resist temptation if you do not read and know and love God's word. Also, the Holy Spirit is ever-present within us to lead us toward righteousness and away from sin. Even as our lusts and Satan pull us towards sin, the Spirit is working against them. So obey what Paul says to the Thessalonians. Do not quench the Spirit. Don't throw a wet blanket, as it were, on the fires of passion for righteousness that the Spirit is stoking within you. When the Spirit urges you to Rather, when the Spirit urges you through your conscience to read your Bible and pray, then do so. When He urges you to open up to your brethren about the sin in your life so that you can seek prayer and accountability, then do so. Too often through our apathy, we, in effect, stamp to cinders what should be a raging fire for our Lord and holiness and righteousness. And we allow the fires and passions of sin to intensify and grow until they lead us to ruin. So don't quench the spirit. Rather, quench your sinful desires within you. Stamp them out. Throw water on them instead of fuel. And we have to be intentional about it. Paul tells us to put to death the deeds of the flesh. If you were being chased by some criminals, you could keep running from them in hopes that you might escape them. But they're faster than you. They're stronger than you. But what you could do with the weapons that the Holy Spirit gives you through the word, you could turn and fight them and escape from being captured in that way. I want you to know that escaping sin is more like fighting kidnappers than it is like running from them. How many of you know what it's like to fall to temptation? And day after day you can feel the sin and the evil desire welling up within you and the temptation growing stronger and it feels like you're just waiting in your weakness until you fall to it again. 
like being chased and running and running and all the while you know you're going to be caught at any moment. It's a helpless feeling. But friends, stop running from sin and waiting for it to catch you. Turn and fight it. Be active in your resistance to temptation rather than passive. Because scripture tells us that if we resist the devil, he will flee from us. Seek accountability. Read your Bible. Pray. Seek to fill those moments of evil desire with a greater passion. Look to Christ. Think of what he's done for you. Have a greater passion for Christ than you do for sinful desires. Be active in your resistance to sin. So brothers and sisters, as we embark on this new year, be aware that temptations are coming and indeed are already here. So be sober-minded and watchful over your hearts and the situations that you find yourself in. Even so, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet temptations of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Know that with the word of God and through the strengthening and leading of the Spirit, we can escape sin and endure the testing of temptation. And indeed, God is faithful to help us. So with that, let's respond by singing number 86 in Hymns of Grace. Great is thy faithfulness. Number 86. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. Morning by morning, 
Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness, morning by morning new mercies I see. Lord unto me. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, the only, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. This ends our service tonight. Tune in online next Sunday at 10 a.m.